You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. Well, I've heard a couple of times a story about a man named George Mueller. Uh, George Mueller, if you're not familiar with him, was a missionary in the 1800s in the midst of kind of rural and industrial England. Uh, he, was, he was known primarily for two things. One, he was known because he had established orphanages throughout these kind of industrial and, and, and impoverished areas of England where there were thousands of orphans desperately in need of care and comfort and provision. He was known because he had started these orphanages and cared for these children, but he was known for a second thing, and that was this, that even though he had started from scratch these orphanages, and even though caring for all of these children required a tremendous amount of resources, George Mueller never asked another man for help. He had committed early on in ministry that what he was going to do as he he faced the overwhelming needs that he had, that rather than going to other people for help, he would go straight to the Lord. And he would trust that as he prayed and as he sought his heavenly Father, the God of creation cared more about these orphans and more about him and his ministry than he ever did. And so he saw year after year after year, miraculous provision. Now there came a day, we're told, that uh, as, as, as this ministry had been building and building and more and more orphans had come, someone walks inside of his house one day, someone that worked at the orphanage and looked him square in the eyes and said, George, it's finally happened. We've finally run out of food. I know we've prayed. I know we've sought the Lord. I know he's provided miraculously so many times, but today is the day where we finally are going to go without. And we're told in in the midst of that, George, he looks at the man, and then without saying a word, he walks out the front door. And he begins running across the field in front of the house. And he runs all the way until he comes face to face with his own son and he looks him in the eye and this is what he says. Come quick and see what the Lord is about to do. He didn't make a plan. He didn't panic. Instead, what he did is he ran and got his son because George Mueller was so acquainted with his heavenly father, that he knew exactly what his father was about to do, and he wanted other people to come and see. We began this sermon series we've entitled Redeemer Encounters with Jesus a few weeks ago, and the hope is that you and I, by casting our eyes on Jesus again and again and again and again, would be able, like George Mueller, in storms and difficulties and quite honestly just normal days in our life, would be able to say to ourselves and to others, I know what my God is about to do. Not because you can tell the future. Not because you understand the circumstances you find yourself in, but purely because you understand and know your God who loves you. 
Jesus himself said in John chapter 10 that he is our shepherd and we are his sheep and his sheep know his voice. That we are so acquainted with him speaking. We know the, the tone and the tenor. We know the cadence of his voice. We are so well acquainted with him. And that's our hope and desire in this sermon series. Now, the, the passage that we are working through today, this encounter today, follows on the heel in the Gospel of Mark of the passage that Pastor Robert preached through last week, a passage about Jesus healing a man who was paralyzed. Now, in that encounter, Mark only tells us one piece of information about this man that comes face to face with Jesus, and that is the simple fact that he was paralyzed. Mark tells us one piece of information that likely defined the existence of that man up until the point that he came face to face with Jesus. And today, as we're introduced to a man named Levi, we are once again told one piece of information about him. Levi, or as he's referred to elsewhere, Matthew is a tax collector. And it's likely that up until this very moment when he comes face to face with Jesus, that one piece of information was his whole identity. Uh, both from, from Scripture and other sources, we know that tax collectors played an integral role in the success and flourishing of the Roman Empire. At, at different points in time, the Roman Empire stretched all the way from Western Europe deep into Asia, covering an unimaginable swath of land. And the truth of the matter is there's only one way that as you capture more and more and more territory that you can continue to maintain more and more and more territory. And that is to have an incredibly large army. The problem with having incredibly large armies is that they are incredibly expensive to maintain. And so as the Roman Empire captured more and more territories, they would collect more and more taxes. And essentially, the system that they put in place is that they would tax the very people who were oppressed in order that through their finances, they could help to fund the army that oppressed them. But Rome was clever. They didn't set up Roman citizens to collect taxes. Instead, they would acquire local citizens. They would offer them enough in the way of power, prestige, and finances that they would convince them to betray their own people and to become local tax collectors. This is who Levi was. He was a man who had turned his back on his own people, the people of God, likely extorting money from these already oppressed people in order to give them to the Roman Empire, those finances, to an empire that had committed atrocities, barbaric acts of violence against the Hebrew people. Levi was, he was a traitor. He was deplorable. 
he was the worst of the worst. Now, now here's, here's why I tell you that, not just because it makes it a little bit more shocking when we see the way that Jesus interacts with Levi, but, but I, I want you to get your head and your heart around the position that Levi is in. You know, some of you guys, if I say this, if I, if I say, we are all sinners, right? My guess is that most of you will nod along. And some of you will nod along because in your own past, there have been times where you've committed various actions or you've said certain things that have been less than good, less than righteous or less than holy, less than what the Lord would desire. And because you have sinned, yeah, I, I, I can agree that I'm a sinner. But for some of you guys, you know that you're a sinner because in your life, you've done something. Or, or you've given yourself over to something. Or you've harmed other people in some way that feels like it has so defined you. That sinner is not one amongst many adjectives. It is, it's an identity you've found yourself in. I, I always love it when uh, I talk to, to people and they'll say something like, you know, Scripture says, listen, we're, we're liars. And people will be like, oh, I'm, I'm not a liar. I mean, I've lied a little bit, but I'm not a liar. I'm like, I think that's the definition of what a liar is. And you're doing it right now. Like Matthew, Matthew, Levi, now, after coming to Jesus, after having his kind of mind open, wouldn't tell his story and say, yeah, I had sinned a little bit. He would say, no, 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 I was a sinner. I resonate with this. Six years ago, I moved back with my wife. We moved back to our hometown in order to plant a church. And Rachel and I, when we left that area, the Lord had not gotten a hold of us yet. And so when we left, we, we left a wake of brokenness behind us. And so coming back to plant a church, especially for me now as a pastor, I, I'd run into people, people who I hadn't seen in a decade or more. The last time they saw me, my life looked nothing like it looked now. And for me to say something like, yeah, I came back because I'm a pastor. I'm starting a church. Like it was, you know, like the, the blue screen on a computer. It just didn't compute and they would freeze up. But the truth of the matter was that's because the life that I had lived was not one where I had sinned. It was marked by an identity of sin. It was a life marked by selfishness. It was a life where I treated other people as objects to be used by me in order to pursue whatever it is I was pursuing. Pleasure, comfort, affirmation, security, value. And I remember walking back into that town and feeling like I didn't have a scarlet A on my chest, but I certainly had a big S. 
for sinner. This is the person that Jesus comes to. He's, he's not one that has sinned. He is not knee-deep in sin. He's under the water, surrounded by brokenness and sin. And this is the man that our Redeemer comes to. And when he comes to him, here's what we see. One, that Jesus pursues when others avoid. One, Jesus pursues when others avoid. Two, Jesus befriends when others revile. Jesus befriends when others revile. And finally, Jesus heals the needy while others hide their needs. Jesus heals the needy while others hide their needs. Jesus pursues when others avoid. He befriends when others revile. And he heals the needy even while others hide their needs. The gospel writer Mark, he begins the story like this. He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. Mark begins by telling us that, that all the crowd was coming out to Jesus. This is early in his ministry, and, and Jesus' fame is spreading. He has, he's uh, committed and, 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 and led powerful teaching and miraculous healings. He's, he's cast out demons. People have seen that this is no ordinary man. And as the crowds hear about and witness themselves these miraculous workings and teachings, they begin to flock to Jesus. Now, now here's why that's important, because Jesus, at this point in time, his fame is building, his renown is building. Anyone and everyone wants to be near Jesus. And Jesus is about to begin to call his disciples to himself. And he has the whole playing field to choose from. I, I, my, my kids are in middle school. I've got two boys, one in sixth grade and one in eighth grade. And one of the funniest things about middle school is whether it's a sixth grade, an event for my sixth grader or my eighth grader, I'll show up there. And there's like one kid that's like six foot four and he's got a beard that I'm jealous of. And then there's another kid that I could have swore was like wearing pull-ups yesterday. But like you just get this variety and you're like, gosh, man, I would hate to be in the midst of that gym class when they choose teams for like dodgeball, right? Because they're like, I want coach, you know, coach Smith and then uh, Mr. Smith, the other eighth grader over here with a full beard and wife and children. And then the last kid that's picked is like, well, you know, you can watch from the edge, right? Like Jesus, Jesus has the whole swath. The A team is coming out to see him, and, and so is the G team. He can pick from anybody. Whoever he wants to surround himself, he can pick from. Whoever he wants to be associated with, he can pick from. Whoever he wants to be, his disciples. 
to trust with carrying out his work of building this kingdom that he has come for. He can choose anybody. So who does he choose? I mean, would he possibly choose Levi? Would he possibly choose a tax collector, a man that was hated? I mean, would Jesus possibly risk his ministry and his fame and his own renown by not just including a man like that, but maybe even giving him a central place? Of course, it's Jesus, so the answer is yes. That's exactly the type of thing that our Redeemer would do and does. Mark tells us this uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek. He says that uh, Jesus, as he passed by, he saw Levi sitting in the tax booth and thought to himself, oh, hey, you should follow me. Sometimes the, the biblical writers will use subtlety in order to identify for us Of course, this was no accident. Of course, this was the mighty hand of God, the creator who has established all things, who rules and reigns over all things. There's this passage in the the story of Ruth, if you know it, where Ruth, this Moabite woman, this, this homeless woman, she stumbles upon the field of this man who would eventually redeem her, save her. And from her and him would come the mighty King David when they would one day marry. And the way the, the writer of Ruth writes it it, it, it literally in the Hebrew says, it just so happened that by happenstance, Ruth just so happened to happen into Boaz's field by chance. Right? Like, you're like, Really? And and Mark seems to be doing the same thing here. As if what Mark is trying to say is, listen, it wasn't by luck that Jesus just wandered past Levi's booth. And if you think I'm reading too much into the text, I'll take you to other places that will just tell you that that's the case. Ephesians chapter 1 says that Jesus had, before the foundation of the world, intended to come and pursue Levi. Jesus himself, when he speaks to the Father at the end of his ministry, he says that the Father has given all of his disciples to Jesus. It wasn't an accident. The Father had determined that Levi would be Jesus's. Jesus in Luke chapter 19 says that he came to seek out and save the lost. The Greek word there for seek out literally is a word to investigate, to to tear through any and all rubble or anything that would hinder him to get to the thing he desired. Jesus comes and calls Levi, but he pursues Levi in order to call him. And of course, no one else would pursue Levi right now. No one but Jesus would be pursuing a man who was not lovely, not desirable, but wicked and detestable. But see, this is the way that Jesus works. Jesus doesn't seek out that which is beautiful. 
He seeks out that which he loves and makes that which he loves beautiful. Jesus has set his affections on Matthew, and as we read the story, Jesus is coming for him. So as Jesus wanders by Levi, Matthew's tax booth, Jesus says, follow me. Once again, I think Mark downplays the magnitude of the words that Jesus utters. It seems like just a simple invitation from Jesus. But the words of Jesus are not devoid of power. The words of Jesus, when they are spoken, they create. The gospel writer John says that Jesus is the word that literally in creation, when the Father spoke, the words he spoke was Jesus, the Son that brought out of nothing all of creation. And so when Jesus says the words, follow me, His words are powerful to change Matthew's heart. To take a man who had been opposed to the people of God, opposed to the things of God, opposed to the desires of God, and by those words, create in him a heart and an affection and a desire that would say to Jesus, okay, And that's what it does. In that moment, Levi rose and he follows Jesus. He rises from his tax booth. He leaves his provision, his status. He leaves the thing that had been the identity in his life. He leaves it all behind and he follows Jesus. This is always how our story starts. It always begins with the pursuit of Jesus. We, we at our last church, we took some time as a, as a church and, and we learned how to tell our story. And one of the things that we learned as a church, is that we tend to tell our story with us as the hero. Jesus helps. Jesus gives us power. He encourages, and and that's a part of our story. But we tend to be the central driving factor in our stories. And it's just not so. Jesus is the one who pursues Jesus is the one who calls. He is the one that begins our story, writes our story, and will see our story to completion. Jesus pursues while others avoid. Second, Jesus befriends while others revile. Jesus says to Levi, follow me, and we're told he rose and followed him. Verse 15, and as he reclined at table in his house, many 
tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, we're told, who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Francis Chan, a pastor and an author, a long time ago, I remember hearing him speak and said that one of the things that he tried to do on a regular basis was reread scripture as if he'd never read it before especially the Gospels. He would want to go back and kind of clear his mind and read it as if it was a brand new story that he'd never heard before. Because undoubtedly, as he did so, things would catch him by surprise. Or he would find himself kind of building an anticipation because he didn't know what Jesus would do next or how it would play out. If we were reading this passage for the very first time, and perhaps you are, and and fantastic if you are, then the end of verse 14 would be enough for the encounter between Jesus and Levi to be shocking and utterly out of place. If all Jesus did was simply show up Look at the man who was a betrayer of Jesus' own people. Look him in the eyes and rather than condemning him, invite him to come and be near him. It would be an outlandish act of grace and mercy. But the story doesn't end there. It goes on and it takes a giant step forward as we are told that Jesus befriends Levi. You know, one of the things that I love best in life is a good meal with good drinks and good friends. Like the, the, the kind of meal where time just kind of is put beside. And, and maybe you sit there for a couple hours on end just telling stories and enjoying time together and laughing. Well, apparently, as much as I may like that, And as much as our society may enjoy a feast like that, we have nothing on the ancient world. Because Mark tells us that Jesus was reclining at table in the house of Levi. This is kind of uh, talked about a few different places, but this was a thing that was kind of brought into the Roman Empire by the Greeks. This is the way that they ate the, the word recline here literally means lie down. Okay, you could have used this word recline to describe what the paralytic was doing on his mat before Jesus told him to get up and follow him. I'm not going to give you a, a physical demonstration because it would be really weird and awkward. And I've done that one other time in a sermon and it felt like no one came back to the church afterwards. Right, but the, the way that it typically would happen is, is tables would be kind of in a U. And along the outside, on, on both sides of the U and at the bottom, there would be couches, literally small beds. And you would lay down on kind of like your left arm, like you were posing for like beauty shots at JCPenney's. Okay? You guys don't know what JCPenney's or those are. That's all right. I need you guys after the sermon, to just go and watch like a YouTube video of the 80s and 90s for me, okay? 
all of us would enjoy our time together better. They would lay down and they would spend the next hour or two there just eating with their one hand and just talking and laying. Now, now here's, here's, here's why this is important. There are a lot of symbols attached to friendship. Right, it's certain markers that you move from an acquaintance with someone and they become a friend. Maybe, maybe it's a marker like a hug or the amount of time that you spend together. But I guarantee you this. If you don't know me and I come into your home and I lay down on the ground and start eating and drinking, you're going to think, wow, he just made himself very, very comfortable. And this is what Jesus was doing. And not to belabor the point, but I think Mark includes the word reclined at table for a specific reason. Mark is, is known as kind of the, the action gospel. He, he tends to begin almost every story with and immediately. Like as if the entirety of his book took place in about 24 hours. Jesus heals and immediately he goes out and then immediately he's walking by and immediately he's teaching, and yet Jesus, or Mark, the, the action gospel, slows us down here with the word recline. As if Jesus goes from the hurried life of ministry, walking and teaching and interacting with the crowds, but once he calls Levi, everything slows down. And Jesus goes to Levi's house and he reclines. He intends to have a long, drawn-out feast with Levi and other tax collectors and sinners. Jesus, catch this, slows his life down for Levi. He enters into Levi's life. He feasts with him so that he can know him. This isn't the way that most rabbis and students would work. Like in our life, if, if you began to follow someone, if someone kind of became a, a superior, an employer, a boss in your life, it is your responsibility to get to know them. But Jesus turns it on its head. And he comes to where Matthew is at. And he enters into Matthew's life. As if to communicate to Matthew that Matthew is not just going to be associated with Jesus. He's not going to just be near Jesus. Matthew is going to be a friend of Jesus. You know, this is one of the most shocking doctrines, in my opinion, in all of Scripture. Jesus doesn't just forgive our sins, though he completely does that and at an unimaginable price. And Jesus doesn't just allow us to be near him or in his presence, which is in itself an unfathomable gift. But Jesus, he calls us his friend. His, his beloved, his trusted confidant, one in whom he takes great pleasure and joy. And, and I want you to look, look, look we're going to do just a little bit of biblical depth of study for a second. 
Look at what Levi has done since Jesus has called him. Look at what ministry success Levi has had. Look at the ways in which Levi has made atonement for his sins. Look at the ways in which Levi has brought Jesus fame and renown. He hasn't. He's done nothing. He hasn't brought anything to the table. As a matter of fact, what he ends up bringing to the table is derision for Jesus. This is part and parcel of Jesus calling us. Uh, Maybe, uh, let me say it this way. There is not a single person in this room right now that has been saved by Jesus that Jesus does not also delight in and call you friend. And it doesn't matter how much you stumble or how little you've grown or how up and down your life or your walk with Jesus has been. When he looks at you, he calls you friend. Jesus befriends even as others revile. The Pharisees show up to show us the difference. They say, Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? That word sinners is is made up of kind of two Greek words. That means no part. Literally, the, the title sinners means you have no place, no part with God. Because of what you have done, you have no place with him and in his presence, in his good grace. And yet, these sinners, Jesus places himself with. Jesus enters into their life. Jesus offers himself to them. This is the the place when I was preparing this sermon. And it happens almost every single week where I go, I don't think I can convince them of how big of a deal this is. And I'll tell you how I I come upon that place where I don't think I can convince you of how big of a deal it is. Because it's typically the exact same place where I go and say to the Lord, I don't think I can convince myself of how big of a deal this is, God. That we are called friends Like if we could just get our arms around this, that that he delights in us, that he is with us and for us, that we haven't just kind of like ceased fire. The peace that we have with him is not not a, a steady state that says, okay, I'm no longer angry at you. Like he brings us in. And says, you are mine. I will be with you. I will share my life with you. And you will share yours with me. If we could get our arms around this, I think it would change so much about our lives. I think of all the people in my life that I try and please, that I desperately want affirmation for and from. I think of the myriad of places in my life where I wrestle with insecurity. 
and I just want someone to tell me I'm okay. I think of all the places in my life that I stress over because I think that who I am and whether or not I'm okay is somehow on the line of whether or not this thing gets done and how it gets done and how I look afterwards. And if I would simply know that the king of the world looks at me in my eyes and says, you are my beloved friend, it would change everything. Jesus pursues when others avoid. Jesus befriends even when others reviles. And finally, Jesus heals the needy even while others hide their needs. Look at how the story concludes. After asking why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners, we're told that when Jesus heard this, he says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The story of Jesus calling Levi, it it ends in confrontation, which is going to become in the story of the life and ministry of Jesus, a common theme. The Pharisees and the scribes are are seemingly walking by this dinner party, and they, they either hear or they see Jesus amongst this group of tax collectors and sinners, maybe prostitutes, other deplorables in their eyes, and they begin to question Jesus. Jesus hears their derision. He hears their scoffing. He hears their doubts about him. And he responds in a way that should stop us all in our tracks. And here's why. As far as I can tell, this passage is the one place in all of Scripture where Jesus gives us a prerequisite to be with him. Like we talk, rightfully so, about God's unconditional love and his unmerited grace. But here is the one place where he makes a clear differentiation between those that he will be with and those he will not. Those he has come for and those he has not. And what is that prerequisite? All you need is need. Like Jesus says, You want to know whether or not I came for you? Answer the question, do you need me? And if the answer is yes, then I have come for you. I was asked one time in an assessment for church planting. They were trying to figure out if the Lord had called Rachel and I to plant a church and whether or not we were equipped to plant a church. And I'm convinced to this day that when they said yes, they got it utterly wrong, but that's for a different story at another time. But at least once during that conversation, I had a a guy look at me and he, he asked me this question. He said, when do you feel closest with the Lord? And it wasn't a question I knew they were going to ask. It certainly wasn't a question I had rehearsed the answer to, but kind of in some ways, surprising to myself, I began to immediately answer this way. I feel closest to the Lord when I have failed. When I have been forced to repent and confess. And after that, I feel closest to him. 
Listen, I, I certainly don't want to fail. I certainly don't want to sin. And I definitely don't want to have to acknowledge my sinfulness and brokenness. But after I do, when I am forced oftentimes by the grace of the Lord to stand as I truly am, broken and sinful and desperately in need, it's in that moment that I experienced most powerfully grace and mercy and kindness of our Savior. Jesus draws near to those who are needy. Listen, this is not a celebration of sin, right? This is not me saying like, hey, listen, you need to become more broken and more sinful because if you can become more sinful, then Jesus will come closer in with you. The good news is I don't have to say that to you because you're broken and sinful. And part of what Jesus is saying here is, is not that the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the other sinners are somehow sinful and the Pharisees are righteous. What he's saying is the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they're forced to reckon with their sin. They've already been outed by everyone else. And that's why they're in here with me. Like, I'll, I'll ask you this question. And of course, we're in church. And so I get that I know how you're going to answer it. But if I asked you the question, where do you sit in this story right now? Like, I, know, I, I get it. Right? The correct church answer is, I, well, I sit with the sinners. I'm a sinner. I get it. Yeah, I'm a sinner. Like, I know that you know that... I know that you're, you know that you're supposed to answer it that way. It's a lot of knowing going on. But, but here's, here's the truth. Let me, let me break it down just a little bit more for you. What if being with Levi is to have your sin out in the open and out in public? What if being with Levi meant that you couldn't pretend like you were okay? What if being with Levi is actually putting you in a place that would allow other people, if they so desired, to condemn you, to judge you, to dismiss you, and to find you wanting? And what if being with the Pharisees meant that you could be in a place where other people couldn't judge you? Where you could convince yourself of your own value and merit and security and beauty and intellect on your own. To be with the Pharisees mean you could cover up any hint of brokenness that you had and hide from everybody else. Isn't all else being equal? I want to be with the Pharisees. That seems easier, seems safer. It certainly seems like it would come with less heartache, but guess what? Everything's not equal. Because Jesus only resides in one of those two camps. And he's with the needy and the broken. And so for you and I to walk openly as sinners desperately in need of grace, 
to be honest about our failing, to be honest about our waywardness. It means that we get Jesus. I'm not saying you earn Jesus through being honest about your brokenness. I'm saying you get to experience him. Because here's the secret of Jesus. We operate in our lives around a truth that says, when we fail, when we're messy, and when we're broken, we repel people. And when we are put together, and we are lovely, and we are desirable, then we attract people. And Jesus actually says that our brokenness, our sinfulness, is part of the very thing that brings him to us. He came for our brokenness. He came for our sinfulness. He came for our inadequacy. He came for our less than-ness. Jesus has come to heal. So don't cover up your brokenness. Listen, I mentioned earlier, we've got five kiddos and our two oldest are now 14 and 12. And so I don't like saying this out loud, but I I can do a little bit of math, which tells me that somewhere in between four and six years, I'm going to have some of my kids no longer underneath of at least, I guess, legal control. Lord knows that's maybe the baseline of control I have over my children. Four years. And it scares me to death. And I don't think I've become a worse father over the last 14 years. But the older they get and the less amount of time I have with them, the more I come to experience my own sinfulness and inadequacy as a father. I recognize that all the things I wanted to impart into them, I don't have enough time anymore, that every time I react to them in a way that is not as the Father in heaven would react to them, but instead is is done out of selfishness or sinfulness in my own way, it it feels bigger in my life. And over this last season, it feels like I have been constantly apologizing to my children. I tell you what, every time I fail to love them well, every time I react in anger, every time I raise my voice, every time I say no because I'm frustrated rather than no because it's not good for them. Every time what floods my thought immediately is, gosh, what kind of father does that? What kind of father yells? What kind of father raises his voice? What kind of father doesn't engage with love, but instead reacts in frustration? What type of father wouldn't give of his time or energy or resources, instead hoards it for himself selfishly? What kind of father does that? And I tell you what I need in the midst of that moment. I need a George Mueller in my life that comes and says, hey, Don't you know who your Redeemer is? Don't you know the way he looks at you? Don't you know the way that he doesn't stop pursuing you? 
Don't you know that he doesn't cast off, but in these moments he draws you closer in? Church, this is what it means to be the body of Christ together. It means that I need you in my life to know my Redeemer better, and you need me. It means that in the midst of the storm, we're going to forget who he is. And so when the storm isn't raging, we want to saturate ourselves with the truth of who Jesus is and surround ourselves with people that know him and that love us because when the storm starts to rage, when the doubt comes, when the sin and failure occurs, we need other people around us that say, no, 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 no. This is who our Redeemer is. Pray with me.